Welcome to the ACFCS Financial Crimecast, a briefing featuring the latest news, analysis, and guidance from across the financial crime spectrum. I'm Brian Spoda-Kindle, SVP of Product and Programming with ACFCS, and if you've listened to any of our other episodes, you may know that I often like to start these podcasts with a question for you, the listener. Well, pardon me for repeating that gimmick, but I'm going to do it again. And not just with any question, but one of those big picture, late night philosophizing kinds of questions. Do you really know who you are? In the fraud and financial crime context, that question is not just an intellectual exercise. It is deadly serious with an array of practical consequences. And the truth is that while we may know who we are at a fundamental level, we may not necessarily know how our identities are being used in the wider world, particularly the online world, and who is using them. In some sense, we don't really know who is who anymore, and we may not even know who we are. For financial institutions, this has had huge implications for customer onboarding and KYC, particularly with the recent shift to digital financial services many firms have undertaken. It's been a huge factor in the skyrocketing fraud risks of recent years, and dealing with customer identity challenges is not likely to get easier anytime soon. In this environment, identity verification is the critical connective tissue between businesses and customers everywhere. It's becoming table stakes in almost every industry, not just financial services, but employment, gaming, dozens of others. That is why I'm excited to bring you this special two-part series exploring the identity verification landscape from back to the uh, dawn of identity verification or thereabouts, all the way to look ahead to the future. And I have an enthusiastic and insightful guide in the form of Shane Oren, the Chief Revenue Officer with OCR Labs. Shane has a fascinating background and journey to the ID verification space himself, which we'll get into when we explore his identity. But before that, let me tell you a little bit about this series and how it's going to go. This is part one, where we'll start with a brief but very interesting history of identity and the various ways and means we've used to validate it over time, under the premise that you can't really know where you're going unless you know where you've been. Shane will then give us some real-world examples of identity verification gone wrong and its consequences for financial institutions. We'll leave off with a look at key current risk areas and challenges driving the need for identity verification, including malicious use of AI like generative AI tools. In part two, we'll pull that AI thread a little further, and we'll use it as a jumping point to discuss what types of industries and companies actually need identity verification. Spoiler alert, it's a lot of them. Uh, We'll also talk strategies that companies are using to approach these identity challenges and practical considerations that your firm may need to adopt or consider when verifying your customer identities. So without further ado, let's bring Shane to the main stage, so to speak, uh, and get his take on our global identity crisis. Well, Shane, thank you so much for joining us on the Financial Crime Cast. It's a real pleasure having you here and uh, very excited to get into this topic of uh, identity verification, automated identity verification um, that you're working on at OCR. Very exciting. Um, 
big area of focus for a lot of our audience, particularly a lot of our fintechs, banks, financial institutions out there, but some of our non-financial uh, members and, and uh, CFCS certified folks out there have run into similar problems on this. So uh, really excited to hear your experience on the fraud trends that you're seeing in this space um, and some of the uh, the industry solutions that you're both seeing uh, institutions adopt and also pioneering. So great to have you here and uh, thanks for being here. Yeah, Brian, thanks for having me. And uh, for those of you who didn't catch that, I'm Shane Horn with OCR Labs. I'm the Chief Revenue Officer here at OCR. I've uh, been here just about a year now. And, uh, you know, funny enough, not a lot of us say this, but I actually chose to come to this space um, as I am enamored with fraud, how it keeps getting more and more, you know, into the into the cool technology space. Froster is now using AI to try and recreate IDs and synthetic IDs. And there's really so much to it. And that's what drove me into this space. And, you know, I have to say I'm kind of a self-proclaimed geek about it, right? I, like I want to know every in and out. So I have tried a lot of these fraud things that they do just to prove if it works or doesn't work. And that's how I run my business and train my teams. Excellent. Yeah. And uh, this isn't a, this isn't a visual medium on this podcast, but if it was, Shane could show you some of his, uh, some of his uh, IDs that he's developed for, for testing purposes and, uh, and flash them up for you to see. So uh, yeah, very interesting, you know, kind of uh, do it yourself approach and an interesting background too. Um, I know that, uh, you know, not to, not to steal your thunder, but you're a, a plasma physicist uh, by original, original trade and training. So can you talk a little bit about you know your your background in this space and you know along the way uh, you know how you ended up in the role you are at at OCR and what you're doing currently? Sure. Yeah, I'm sure it's something that people hear every day. Uh, transition from plasma physicist <laughs> to sales leader. Uh, that's definitely what you hear every single day. Um, look, I, I was in engineering. I loved it. I had my degree in electrical. Uh, immediately got to to work at my first location, and it was chemical mechanical. And immediately they said, hey, go work on this high-density plasma machine. Spent five years solving a problem, which I thoroughly enjoyed every minute of it. And spent the next 10 years traveling the world, helping people solve the problem that I had solved. So, you know, solving the problem and understanding the underlying root cause of it has always been in my DNA. And I really love that when I brought that into sales, the reason I've been so successful is analyzing what's going on, what's going wrong, what's going right, and how to amplify or fix. And so it was kind of logical as I went through my career transition. I started out at NetSuite selling financial accounting software. I knew nothing about it. And uh, you know, three months into that, I met my annual number. I'm kicking ass. And the team goes, well, Shane, uh, how are you doing it? And I said, how are you not doing it? And it was this epiphany of putting engineering and the ability to analyze the situation and data into work and create a process. And so if I fast forward a few years coming to OCR Labs, I interviewed at 10 other companies in the space. We'll leave them nameless to protect the innocent, um, some in Americas, some in EMEA. And what I realized was everyone makes claims that they've got the best tech and they solve these problems that our industry sees with ID verification today. However, there was only one company of the 10 that I felt truly had market differentiating, game-changing, leading technology, and that's OCR Labs. So I came on board. I knew they didn't have the best sales process, but I knew the technology would work. And if we can get that voice to market and teach people about how to differentiate the solutions you're looking at, how to think about it when you're saying, 
I'm going to bring a solution into my company, or I, the consumer, am going to go use a solution. Is it powered by the best tech? I love that response because you touched on so many of the themes we're going to get into over the course of this conversation. You know, number one, of course, the importance of high-powered, high-performing technologies in an increasingly volatile and fast-moving fraud space, right? But also, I love that problem-solving mentality. Um, and uh, I, it leads us into our next topic of conversation very well because we're, we're, we're talking here about the, the, the problem, the very broad problem of fraud, um, and particularly how to address fraud with identity verification. And fraud's always been a problem. It's been a problem since human, the, the dawn of human communication, right, and the ability to defraud each other. But I would say, and I, you know, I love your point of view on this as well, that um, it is at this point an existential risk for certain financial institutions, meaning that if you get uh, attacked by fraud at a certain scale or you make yourself vulnerable to fraud at a certain scale, you could theoretically not exist in a, in a matter of you know a couple of years, right? Um, so it's a bigger problem than, than I would argue ever before in the financial institution space and beyond. Um, so I, I love your point of view on it. You know, you sit at a unique spot. You work with some of the world's largest financial institutions, also a lot of you know non-financial institutions that need identity verification. So, what are you seeing regarding fraud losses um, and some of the you know the key fraud risks out there? Yeah, it's interesting because you know the consumer thinks about fraud much differently than the business. The consumer says, "Ah, oh, my credit card got hacked," and you know you're insured right? You're like, oh, no problem. I call my credit card company and they make it go away. And you're off with your new card spending again and doing your thing. But we think about the businesses that are now seeing fraud attacks at a scary level, right? So in America alone, there was 1,802 cybersecurity events last year, impacting 422 million people. Now let's think about that. That's more people than live in America, which means some people had the unfortunate thing of being hit twice. Well, but the, who paid for those fines? Who's suffering the brand, you know, uh, as you will, the impact of that brand, right? So if that brand hits that breach, you, the consumer, tell everyone you know about it. And if you're happy with that brand, you tell one or two people you're happy with it. So the negative impact to that brand, as you said, could put them out of business. We're seeing things like synthetic IDs now for $150. I can purchase a synthetic ID and become you. It would scan through a driver's license, uh, scan at the DMV. It would get you, you know, passed at the airport. Uh, we're seeing phishing schemes. We're seeing ones now that when somebody sends you a text message, do I know you? You respond, no. Don't respond, people. Stop. Do not click on the link. What you're doing is sending back your SIM card information, your details, allowing them to take over your 2FA. We don't even think about it, but there's so many of these things that are happening on a daily basis now that companies have to protect themselves. And rightfully so, they need to find a solution or solutions that will give them that. But you've always got to stay one step ahead of the fraudsters. And I would say, you know, if we go back to that previous question is, why did I choose OCR Labs over all the other players out there? And I would tell you this, they're the chat GPT of ID verification. They are light years ahead of trying to figure out the mousetrap and how to prevent fraud that quite frankly, if we really got into an in-depth, we could talk for hours about it, it would scare most of your listeners because 
It's crazy the length that fraudsters are going to and the use of AI to collect your user information. And quite frankly, how easy it is to take over someone's identity in this day and age, regardless of where you are in the world. It's really interesting because as as you were, as I was listening to that answer come in, and uh, you know, I know our listeners probably can't see it, but I got one of those texts on my phone that just says, "How are you?" Right, and I get these probably once a day. Um, and if I respond, you know, then I'm I'm caught up in the fraud scheme right off the bat. So yeah, in real time, a real time illustration of uh, of what you're talking about. Let Let's take it down a level from kind sure. of the big picture to to maybe give us an example of what you've seen. And particularly, you know, a lot of our listeners out there are in the um, financial institution space. Some of them are actually in the fintech space. I'd love a, a story from the field um, that kind of brings us a little bit more to life. And, you know, particularly in this day and age, we've, we've moved to primarily digital onboarding, right? Where you, you don't see anybody, you're not, there's, there's a total lack of face-to-face still happening online. So um, can you give us a, a, an example of, you know, a fraud scheme that you've seen play out at a, uh, you know, in the digital onboarding space and, and with the, one of the takeaways from that? Yeah, let's uh, leave names out of it. And I'll try my best to not Fair say enough. it because it's hard sometimes, but um, digital onboarding. So what do you need to open an online bank account these days if it's not at one of the major players and it's one of the new creative fintechs that's really trying to capture the millennial age and making banking easy. So you sign up online, uh, you give them your social security number, which if you were in one of the data breaches last year that exposed 500 million people's information, your social was actually caught up in that. So it needs a social, you open your bank account, they send you a card to the address you put in, and they send you a 2FA to an email, not to a phone. All right. Well, email is about the easiest thing I can create and re- replicate that your email, even if it just comes to me at the same time. But really, I can do a redirect on your email very straightforward. In about five minutes time, I could redirect your email. So it's coming to my address. Okay. So friend of mine opens the account, follows through it, been using it for about a year, and all of a sudden goes to use it and declined. Opens the app because there's no brick and mortar. I can't go into the location and say, hey, what's going on? Opens the app, won't let him log into the app. So he calls in through the call center that you guys all know and love, gets to somebody after an hour's time and says, hey, what's going on? And they say, well, sorry, sir, your uh, your account's been locked. Uh, you don't have any money in there. He goes, yes, but I didn't take it out. It was fraudulent. Somebody else took out my $30,000. Sorry, sir, uh, we need to do an account verification. Well, they do a 2FA, and he's one of those people who responded to this text message, so his 2FA doesn't come to him. He says, hey, I'm not getting the 2FA. She recites his number back to him, and he goes, yep, still don't get it. So now the actual person can't tell who he is because there was no ID verification done There was no liveness picture taken to make sure that the ID was accurate. It was a true government-issued document. The person at the time of account creation was a live, breathing human that matched the document, and the document was real. So the conundrum he's in now is 70 days post-incident, still doesn't have his $30,000 because they're saying, how do we know that you are you and you're not the fraudster? So this type of incident is happening more and more. It's not just happening really with the online banks. If you think about crypto, the crypto exchanges, it's all about not knowing who you are. And you can go in through your cold key and do these things and you can remain anonymous. 
but doesn't that create a whole nother pile of problems? And it does. So in this particular one, if we go back to the online banking one, he's now had to file a lawsuit against the company when if they would have just had a simple ID verification tool as one added step, could be done in 30 seconds or less, they would know who he was, they'd have it on file, and he would be on with his day. They were using third-party verification services to say, yes, the address he typed in is correct, and the IP address is in the right general location for this particular individual. There's ways, but are they the best ways? And with the data breaches, Brian, that have been out there, your fingerprints are no longer safe, your social is not safe, right? Your voice print isn't safe anymore. You really, the only way to do it and avoid the mission impossible tricks and games that are happening today is to be a live breathing person with a true issued government document that is validated as real. And they could have avoided this situation too. It's a, it's a great point that, you know, there's the direct loss, there's no lawsuit spawned out of this, and uh, there's the reputational um, hazards to this this unnamed, this institution that will go unnamed, right? So there's a yeah. whole wave of, uh, of you know, back-end and, and splash-on effects to this that, as you as you point out, could have been avoided by a relatively, uh, relatively simple compliance measure if it was in place. And yeah, I think that'll resonate with a lot of the 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 fintechs, but also the banks that have moved into digital onboarding, tried to speed up the onboarding process to really compete with a lot of the fintechs that are out there. I'm interested in your viewpoint on this. A quick tangent, and then I'll we'll get back into uh, sure. uh, pull on some other threads that that were brought up in that that uh, that story. But uh, you know, uh, a lot of times I've heard the kind of at this point maybe cliche that you know faster faster onboarding faster payments, faster financial services in general equals faster fraud. That in other words, it's inevitable that if we try to do things faster for the customer, we end up with fraud being enabled with it. Do you think that's true? Or, you know, are there solu- are there ways that we can kind of keep pace with faster onboarding and do checks, do things, you know, in maybe not real time, but you know, as fast as fast as uh, you know, you would want to be onboarded as a, as a client, right? Or do we have to put in that you know dirty word friction, right, in the process in order to in order to prevent fraud? Yeah, I, I honestly think that as a industry, we need to work together, right? The the people who claim to be the all in one printer and do everything, we know how that works. It doesn't. <laughs> right? Um, the printer's never the fax machine, it's never the phone, it's a copier. Well, which one of the ones is it and how does it work? And when they try and do all, and I use that analogy to give you a visualization because we do, for example, ID verification. What I don't do is document fraud analysis on a, a bank statement or a utility bill. I only do it on a government-issued identity document. Okay, so I need to partner with someone and not be afraid to partner with someone to allow both of us to see that at the same exact moment in time to onboard that customer. And really, if done correctly with proper solutions, it could happen. Now, what I'm going to tell you is going to be shocking, but there is no standard. There's no ISO standard that says every ID verification platform must do a document fraud analysis on the document. Most of the people in our industry today do the minimum. Okay, so KYC was invented back in the 30s. It's been modified twice since then. The last one was 2008. But it just needs a picture, a first name, last name, and an address on a document. It doesn't mean it must be real and in your hand. It could be a piece of paper. It could be uploaded. It could be a screenshot of a screenshot, right? 
all of these mediums are allow manipulation. So we have to look back at the compliance and where does this start? And as I said earlier, analyze what went right, what went wrong, how do the frosters get in? What type of documents are they using? Oh, they're using black and white photos. They're using PDF uploads. Like, let's go back a second and think about that. And then industry standard has to change to allow speed and efficiency to get to a level where you and me and everyone listening today are comfortable to now use that document or to now use our face as our key. It's going to come back to compliance and partnerships in order to achieve that goal of speed and frictionless onboarding. Yeah, that's a great answer. And I mean, it speaks to the siloed nature of you know, both the, the financial institutions and others that are adopting some of these solutions and, you know, the the data silos we built around identity uh, in and of itself, right? Um, and it, it's also, a, I think, a, a great answer because it speaks to the need for that close collaboration um, that's going to be essential. And, you know, as, as a, I have said, and many people far smarter than me in this space have said, you know, fraudsters and uh, financial criminals collaborate much more effectively than uh, fraud fraud risk prevention uh, professionals collaborate sometimes. So, uh, you know, I'm interested in, in your thoughts on uh, where we're headed. So, you know, you kind of gave us a brief history of identity verification there, or at least a snapshot of it. Um, identity management right now seems like it's, you know, a bit of a mess. I think a lot of our professionals out there would agree with that. Um, and it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. Um but, you know, where are we headed in terms of, you know, what's what's the next step in terms of of identity management? And I know there's a lot of buzzwords out there around, you know, identities on the blockchain, so on and so forth. Um, where, do, where do you see this going and, and uh, what's, what's coming down the pike to help us make sense of this mess? Yeah, look, we have to listen to what the consumers want. The consumers want to control their data because rightfully so, they don't trust that the business, the corporation is gonna keep their data safe, right? If we think about some of the breaches that have happened in the last 12 months, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon, Marriott, just to name a few, all of us are probably impacted by one of those. And if you can't trust those companies to protect your data, who can you trust? So the answer to your question is people really want to control their own identity verification and use it when it's needed for them. And to authenticate that, yes, I am Shane, great, no problem, in you go. Without having to give my social to yet another company, without having to hand my password to yet another business. So the phrase self-sovereign identity is coming up a lot. And how to achieve that? Well, the race to create a wallet that has your ID in it, that you can now use to authenticate you are you and in control of that document, it's kind of the new age. We're going to hear it a lot. Digital identity. Uh, new Zealand is one of the first countries to ever take on this project of the digital identity. They're claiming, right, to get rid of all physical identities, only to be in a digital form. That's a pretty bold statement if you think about how long we've had this thing in our wallet, in our purse, in our pocket, right? Like, it's been a long time. So the consumer, are they comfortable with the digital identity yet? No. What if their phone dies? How then do they access? Like there's all these slew of questions, right? But if we look at it again, it is fraudsters will figure that out. You have to ground no matter what it is. If it's a wallet, if it's a keychain, heck, if it's your cold key, 
it's got to be grounded. And when I say grounded means when you establish that it is what it is, was it truth? Did somebody run a document fraud analysis on that document? And what I'll tell you today, Brian, is there is no, again, ISO standard for that DFA, that everyone should do it and comply and be audited because in and of itself is a hard test to perform. Frosters know this, right? They pick the weakest link and start to pick it apart. I think with AI and generating AI, frosters are going to get more sophisticated to use AI. If you've typed in, tell me a story about Brian, it's going to go find everything it can on you and build a story about you. And guess what? If you haven't done it, you should try it. It's pretty scary, but pretty accurate. So if I know the details already of where you went to school, where you got married, where you live, the car you drive, right? The, the socials you're on, can I figure out most of your passwords? The answer is yes. And with AI, it can be done in seconds, not days or years like it used to. We've got to think a step ahead of those fraudsters and cyber criminals and try and figure out how we stop them. And it's not easy. It's not easy. We do it every day, day in and day out. And if I told you half of what I know, I, I think we'd all be scared and keeping cash in our pocket. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, the little that I've heard is, is frightening already. Shane, thank you so much for a great conversation in the first part of this uh, dialogue here. It's been fantastic. This uh, review of the identity verification history landscape, key challenges, where we're a little bit about where we're headed. We have so much more to come in part two of this series where we'll talk about uh, where you need to and how you need to adopt identity verification, how you work with uh, uh tech firms, providers in this space, and practical considerations for your institution when you are trying to verify your customer identities. Some great advice to share uh, in part two. That will be coming soon. But in the meantime, I just want to thank you, Shane, for a great conversation. And I want to thank our audience for tuning in. The Financial Crimecast can be found on Apple uh, Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, many other places where your favorite podcast lives. So thanks again for being here for this episode and look forward to having you join us for part two and for future episodes. Bye for now, everyone.